This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hang.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me here again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. I just want to, before I introduce my guest, I want to say a few thank yous publicly here on the airwaves. I want to thank my family and uh, partners over at C-Suite Radio Network, where, of course, after we do the live show, shortly thereafter, you can find the podcast link on my host show with C-Suite Radio Network. And as well, I'd like to very much thank... My endorsers and my sponsors, Halton Honda, for believing in the content, and myself with the show Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. So who is my guest today? Well, my guest today is an amazing woman by the name of Dr. Marissa Slavin. So who is Dr. Marissa Slavin? Well, what I can tell you about her is that she is an emerging author, practicing palliative care physician, and lifelong reader of literature. Inspired by Austin Dickens, as well as Asimov and Bradbury, she honed her writing skills at the Humber School of Writers, where she was mentored by authors David Besmosgis and Tim Wynne-Jones. Her resulting debut young adult novel, Code Blue, balances the haunting impact of climate change with a compelling coming-of-age story mixed with elements of mystery and intrigue. With a strong female protagonist, her environmental dystopian young adult adventure combines impressive scientific knowledge, a well-crafted plot, and fully developed characters. This book will be published on Earth Day, April 22, 2018, by Moon Willow Press. A frequent speaker in medical circles, Marissa's career as a physician and science background fueled her research into climate change, a topic she has become extremely knowledgeable and passionate about. Born in Montreal and a graduate of McGill's prestigious medical school, Marissa completed her medical training in Boston, Massachusetts. She continues to work as a palliative care physician and has also dedicated herself to the craft of writing, sharpening her writing skills through her connection with Humber and the SCWBI. In her free time, she shares her love of reading with her husband and children and enjoys yoga, movies, and football. Welcome, Marissa. How are you, our friend? Thank you so much, Lisa. I'm great this morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's lovely to be rejoined with you here. And uh, for radio listeners who may not be privy to this, but Marissa and I work quite closely together in a mentoring ship capacity as well. I showcased Marissa not that long ago on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald uh, TV with the 365tvnetwork.com. So I just want to say, Marissa, I just absolutely love your journey. It's been a true honor being able to be on this uh, ride with you and all the things that you're aspiring to do and accomplishing. I just want to say that I'm enamored by you, and I just think it's a complete honor to be with you with this. So thank you so much for everything you do for everyone. Oh, you're very welcome, Lisa, and I really enjoy your energy. It's just so positive and enthusiastic and <laughs> heartfelt and wakes me up. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. And I truly say, and I, I mean this sincerely, you know, vibe attracts tribe. And so the clearer you become within your own journey, the right people show up. There's no coincidence attached to that, in my humble opinion. So the fact that we are in the same tribe, uh, you know, believing in the same kinds of things and emitting all kinds of positive energy and trying to make a difference, a conscious impact with the collective, I just want to say thank you for further inspiring me along the way to do and further love what I, I do. So just amazing stuff that you're doing so why don't why don't we get into the inception of the journey in terms of the book um and you know again no coincidence that's scheduled for launch and release on earth day april 22nd 2018 i think that's fantastic that you and the publishing company were able to establish that so fantastic Oh, absolutely. Thank you. And I have to say, I mean, my publisher, again, as you just said, Lisa, Tribe attracts Tribe, and and uh, they're not the biggest publisher around. They're a small Canadian press, 
but they are dedicated to environmental causes and all their publications are fiction or nonfiction have environmental themes and they actually frequently donate uh, royalties to environmental causes. So I think it's, it's not surprising to me that they came up with the idea of Earth Day release and it is a perfect match. <laughs> Absolutely. Amazing. Well, even from just a marketing standpoint, that's phenomenal. So good on you both. But, um, so why don't we talk a little bit about what it is specifically about climate change and the environment that really gets you jazzed up? Because there's so many different things that people get behind in terms of plights, in terms of mission, in terms of unification, you know, taking the message to a different level. What is it specifically about climate? And your hashtag, of course, is climate hope. What, what is this for you personally and professionally, Marissa? What does this all symbolize and represent for you in your life? Yeah, so great question. I think to answer that, what I might do is, is kind of start back with how I got interested in it, yes. um, because admittedly, this was not a lifelong passion for me. It's something that I've only become interested in in the last few years. Um, you know, when I was very busy with my work and with my young children, I had heard about climate change. I, I had a rough idea what it was about, but I guess at that time I thought, you know, well, this is a whole different field and it's very complicated. I couldn't possibly understand it and it seems pretty dismal anyways and depressing. Um, so I, I didn't pay it too much attention for, for most of my adult life, to be honest, even though I saw uh, the Al Gore movie, Inconvenient Truth, when that yeah. came out. 2006. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I had that kind of same vibe. The place that I was at in my life was like, oh, this is just too much, too much information, too heavy to handle. Um, and and then how I got interested in it uh, was really in my interest in writing, uh, which is an important creative outlet for me. And a few years back, my daughter and I were reading a lot of dystopian fiction together and a lot of books where the female character was really empowered, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were often, they were empowered uh, through being uh, courageous, brave, physically strong, able to shoot arrows and jump off trains and, and also <laughs> great. But I thought to myself, you know, where's, where's the heroine who saves the world because she's smart? Yes. And, you know, maybe a little bit geeky, uh, but, you know, that that's an important thing in the real world. And uh, I couldn't find one that appealed to me. So I thought, well, I better write one then. Awesome. And, uh, Love it. <laughs> you know, why not? Right. Why be afraid? You just try it and see what you can do. Absolutely. Uh, so so I thought, well, if it was a strong, smart female heroine, what would she be saving the world from? And I thought, oh, well, climate change, that, that would be a good thing to save the world from. So then I had to go and teach myself all about climate change. And what I found, because then I was really motivated and interested, was that it was really easy to learn about. Um, in fact, the first book that I ever picked up about it when I decided to write this was called Cows Save the Planet. Wow. <laughs> right? Cows Save the Planet. But it was incredible. And again, it was so full of hope and, and great ideas written by a journalist named Judith Schwartz. Picked it up in a tiny bookstore in Vermont. And when I started with that, I was like, wow, you know, there are things that, that exist already and that can be done to turn that around. So, so that was really inspiring to me. Um, and it just seemed like the more I learned, whether it was from books or videos, documentaries or YouTube videos, the more I learned, the more I realized, like, yes, this is very easy to break down and understand. And there's a lot going on that's really positive and a lot to be hopeful for. And I feel like if people knew those two things that I myself didn't know a few years ago, they would be more engaged and, and uh, willing to, to help out and take a role in whatever way they can. So Climate Hope sort of became my mission to spread the word to people that, that this not only is this an important topic, which I think most people acknowledge, but it's something that you can engage in in a very positive way. 
Beautiful. So why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, in terms of, and I, I love the fact that you said it was interesting when you said a few minutes ago, you know, when you first were looking into this and exploring it, you thought initially it was too heavy to handle. And I find that very interesting coming from a palliative care physician because that position in itself, that vocation, that takes a very select type individual. Um, so coming from a palliative care physician to look upon anything else outside of that is too heavy to handle. That I, I kind of chuckled at that because to me, you're just powerhouse and uh, you're very unique in what it is that you do to make this world a better place and to enrich the lives of others, particularly when we're talking about the end of life and how this is also a segue into the title of your book, Code blue. So let's let's talk about how this all interconnects for you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think you know you're right. A lot of people see palliative care work as being uh, pretty heavy, uh, mm-hmm. and you know obviously it is to some extent. Uh, however, I think we all recognize that when there are problems, we can either hide our head in the sand and ignore them whether it's problems of our own health or mortality or problems of the health and, and uh, environment and, and the bigger picture. So we always have that choice of, you know, facing our problems or hiding from our problems. And when I went into medicine and I saw that many people who were approaching their end of life were suffering and were not getting the help they need, I sort of said, well, I, I'm not afraid. Uh, I don't feel a need to hide from this. We're all mortal. It's going to happen to everyone. And if it's going to happen, let's make it the best possible it can be, even though it's a terrible situation. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And so how does that lend into a perfect marriage of Code Blue? And, and, and what was it that, you know, catapulted you into making that decision for a book title? Because it could have been a whole host of things. I think it's brilliant. I think it's very effective and very impactful. Um, but what was the cathartic moment for you or the light bulb moment that you went, yeah, that's it. I don't even need to consider anything else. Absolutely. So code blue is a term that's used in the medical field. If you're ever in a hospital type situation, you might hear overhead code blue and then a location. And a code blue means that a person has had a respiratory or cardiac arrest and a team of uh, doctors and nurses would come and try to resuscitate the person. Um, so they're sort of right on the brink of life and death. Things mm-hmm. can be turned around in a code blue. People can be brought back to life. doesn't always happen, but it's a possibility. And when I was writing the book and learning about climate change, it was, as you said, like a light bulb went off. And I said, oh, my God, that's exactly where we are with the earth and with climate change is, you know, if we don't do anything, then this is for sure going to go very poorly for all the living creatures or many of the living creatures on earth, including humans. But I don't think it's too late. And I think if we call a code blue now and and people step up with all the skills that each of us have, we can save things. Love it. Absolutely love it. I mean, what an empowering way to not only, you know, embrace that, because that's so crystal clear. And when you when you succinctly put it that way, Marissa, you know, it's really hard for people to turn a blind eye or say, you know what, that problem's way too big for me. There's nothing I can do about that or anything that I do think that I initiate doing to be a part of the solution and to be a contributor. It's not really going to have much impact. It's not going to carry much weight because I'm just one person. So why don't we dispel some of that for the listening audience? You know, when we talk about or when you talk about the ways in which when you view this subject matter, no matter how dismal it may appear to people, that there is hope, there are solutions. What does that look like? What would you suggest to people? Yeah, so I think um, there's a lot of sort of very broad categories for people who want to do something and aren't quite sure what to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd say number one thing that that anyone can do to to make a start of things, if you are worried about climate change, if you do think it's real and and you you feel that you want to contribute, um, the first thing is to to do some self-education. And this is really easy to do. There are lots of videos uh, on YouTube and lots of documentaries that you can watch. Um, there's lots of books that you can read, nonfiction as well as fiction. 
Um, and, and so I think, you know, a great place to start is when you have a few minutes, instead of watching a cat video, watching, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it's, it, it, there, there are, there are some easy to watch videos as well, some fun ones. Uh, there's some great series. There's a super series called Years of Living Dangerously, which is available. The first season is available on YouTube and the second season I think is available on National Geographic Channel or you can download it at uh, iTunes. So there's lots of great education things people can do. Um, then, you know, other things that people can, can do is to start to think about maybe if you have a little bit of money and you'd like to donate to a charity, there are a lot of great charities where people are working and investing their time, their energy, their expertise in trying to uh, work for a better climate situation and climate justice and climate action. So uh, donating money to charity. There's a lot of events that you can go out to. Um, so if you don't mind spending a little bit of your own time going to a march, going to a protest, uh, going to a community forum uh, to make your voice heard, to stand up and be counted. Um, you know, we're also really lucky that we live in a democracy so we can make our votes count when it comes to climate change. We can let our politicians know what we want to do. Um, and then there's lots of really individual things and choices that we can make all the time around our, our own transportation, our own energy use. Uh, our eating habits is a huge one. Um, there is uh, another amazing book I have to tell you about called Drawdown. Mm-hmm. And Drawdown is 100 solutions that exist already to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And they rank them according to how effective they are. And number the number four most effective uh, solution to bringing uh, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is for people to change their diets and eat less meat. Amazing. See, that would be something that I think majority of people would be cognizant of. So let's talk a little bit about why why that is. What is the explanation or the rationale behind that? Absolutely. So uh, – Animal agriculture, uh, you know, farming methods, overall, most of the farming methods done are very factory farm. Uh, places where animals are grazed, which is kind of what we picture when we think about cows, we think about them out in the pasture or eating. So places where they're grazed is often in South America where rainforests are cut down. So all the carbon dioxide from hundreds and thousands of years of rainforest is released. All the potential to capture carbon dioxide in the rainforest is gone. And they've turned all this land into grazing land. So the land itself can't absorb any carbon dioxide. Then the amount of energy that it takes to produce food to feed cows, if they're not grazing and we're feeding them corn products, etc., that energy that goes into feeding them is all wasted energy that we could get so many more calories if we ate the actual vegetable matter ourselves. Um, so it's, it's really a zero sum game. I think people, you know, I started about the book Cows Save the Planet and people think, oh, cows, they're terrible because they produce methane and methane is, uh, another greenhouse gas. But methane is not really the big problem. It's factory farming. Um, and rainforest destruction that are the big problems. We eat 70% more meat in North America now than the generation that grew up in the 1950s and 60s. So that's just our parents' generation. And we don't think, oh, my God, our parents had such a hard life and they were vegetarians or hippies. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were the meat and potatoes generation. So why are we eating 50 to 70 percent more meat than that generation. There, there's no reasonable explanation for it. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, you know, you're citing some information, some stats, and some backstory that I wasn't even cognizant of. So I just want to say thank you because this is all about enlightening people, and we can't be part of the solution if we don't even understand what some of the problems are or how we can go about individually uh, broaching our approach to 
eradicating some of this or at least getting it under control and hopefully reversing it. So, you know, what else can you suggest, Marissa? I mean, you're on a roll here. I want to give people as many opportunities to jump on whatever most appeals to them, whatever speaks to them, whatever they think is less complicated. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, another, obviously, I think we're, we're pretty good in Canada about, uh, recycling, mm-hmm. uh, and especially in Ontario, we do a lot of composting, but not everybody has that opportunity as easily as we do. So those are really important ways of dealing with our consumer culture. But we could back it up a little bit and say, well, do we need to participate as much as we do in our consumer culture? You know, again, I think we're doing a lot more of this now than we did 20 or or 30 years ago. A lot more buying things, whether it's fast fashion, water in bottles. These are all things that, that didn't exist a few decades ago. And again, when we thought life was great back then, people were consuming as much as they are now. Um, so we can definitely think about consuming less uh, mm-hmm. when possible. You know, you can you can go to thrift stores and buy things that are still in excellent condition, but other people are done with. And when you're done with your things, you can donate them to thrift stores. So a little bit more maybe of a, a sharing culture rather than a, a use and toss culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a really important thing, especially this time of year, right? Because we're heading into the holiday season and gift buying, and that's a, a super commercial time. We just had Black Friday and, and Cyber Monday. So I, I think it's really important to think about those things and maybe make some better choices there. Beautiful. Absolutely love it. And yes, you're right. As we are embarking upon the holidays, you know, people are always thinking, okay, what can I get so and so for Christmas? And and a lot of times because we're always chomping at the bit for time, we're not always being conscious about our choices. We're not looking at the long-term projected effect or impact. We're just doing it whatever's convenient right now in the here moment, trying to get as many things off our to-do list as possible. But yes, take the opportunity, take the time, dial it back, scale it down and go, okay, how do I want to spend my monies? Is the monies that I'm spending, is it going to be part of the overall problem or is it going to be part of the solution? So, you know, I mean, and we're all consumers, so it's very important that we feel that we're making informed decisions, not just based on, you know, what's most cost effective today. Sometimes you gotta put money out to get, to do the right thing. You gotta, you know, and everybody gets caught up in the dollar amount value, but not necessarily realizing consciousness. You know, what are we doing for the collective? What are we doing for the legacy of our children and our children's children? So we do have to think ahead. If we're gonna be consciously and morally responsible, we do have to think ahead. So thank you for stressing that particularly with the holidays uh, upon us, Marissa. Absolutely. And another great thing, Lisa, you and I both know because we have kids, for a holiday gift giving is homemade gifts, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, that, that's a good way to go. And, you know, we I think that most people are aware. There's been many studies that show people get much more enjoyment on money spent on activities than on mm-hmm. actual physical things. And so when thinking about holiday gifts, first of all, there's gifts you could get that don't even cost any money, like coupons for going for a long walk together, Mm -hmm. or, you know, you could go out to dinner together. That does cost money. Movies, shows, any type of experience is a really great gift to give someone. And certainly it's a kind of gift that I love to receive. Time with my children is my number one gift that that I like to have. So Absolutely. Well, the thing about it, too, is it's memory making, right? Because, I mean, if you look at our age, Marissa, I mean, we've we've had many Christmases, we've had many holidays. And unless there's some sentimentality attached to certain gifts that we've received from certain people who may still be in our lives today or or they've passed on, at the end of the day, what it is we remember most is our reflections. You know, who did we spend our time with? What did we do? Why is such and such such an important memory that we will always, you know, retell the storytelling? 
telling of or, you know, maybe do it for a second time and it becomes a ritual or it becomes a tradition. So, yes, anything that's memory making, I think, is is most vitally important in terms of how to be connected with people, particularly children, because children is generally we, we live through vicariously through children, knowing that it's, you know, oftentimes the spirit of Christmas and holidays. It's for the children. Um, so, yeah, anything that I think enhances memory making opportunities, I think, is a win win. Right. And, and, you know, bring it back also to my palliative care experience. And again, when people are very ill and facing their own imminent death, they're not lying. They're going, oh, but I have this thing and that thing and this chandelier and this perfume. They're mm-hmm. thinking about all their memories and all their family and friends and loved ones. And it never mattered how much money or things they had. What mattered was their experiences, their love, and, and those things are what count at the end. Beautiful. Absolutely true. So the other thing I want to touch upon, too, because you would be quite knowledgeable in this area, and maybe these things exist, maybe they don't, or maybe it's starting up. I'm not too sure. But, you know, when we talk about the holidays and we talk about, you know, there's a lot of people who are without. There's people who are without homes, homelessness, uh, people who don't have the money to, you know, get themselves a nice meal. So that's usually when volunteerism is is quite generally ramped up around the holidays, knowing the differential between the haves and the have-nots. But in terms of the environmental issue you know is there is there anything that people can volunteer or bring their children and get their children involved in around the holidays that are specific to your passion here this topic we're talking about today um so the the environmental charities just like many charities do experience an increase in their donations at the time of uh holidays in terms of activities, uh, any chance that you have to engage your children in an outdoor activity mm-hmm. is a really good chance for them to learn a new appreciation for the environment, um, which kind of enhances your own and their passion to maintain the world. You know, we would love to be able to go out and, and pick uh Christmas trees or go see the lights, go out for a walk in a snowy woods. Um, so all of those kind of activities, while not volunteerism, are a way of connecting with the environment that will ignite your own passion for it. Beautiful. Love it. And so let's talk about some of your tangible, intangible mentors. When you talk about climate change, when you talk about the environment on the global scale, who are some of the people that you believe are making the most impactful difference, who really have a voice in this community? Absolutely. So uh, there's there are many people kind of in all different roles who have important voices. Um, so journalists, I mentioned uh, Judith Schwartz had written that book about cows. She also wrote a really great book about water. Mm-hmm. Naomi Klein is a very well-known author and journalist who's a tremendous voice. She's uh, Canadian, but her voice is heard worldwide in terms of her advocacy uh, for climate action and social justice. Uh, so writers, for sure, journalists and writers have a big voice and have been huge inspiration for me. Uh, politicians, we talked about Al Gore. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is another politician that comes to mind who's done a lot. Um, Michael Bloomberg, who was a politician in New York and, and is now an activist. Uh, so there are many politicians that I, I greatly admire in terms of their activism. There are people like David Suzuki, who I think you've interviewed before, right? Yes, I have. Yes, yes. he was amazing. <laughs> he is amazing. Yeah, so he is he is an a, amazing, inspirational advocate for climate action and really taking a, a research-based approach to, to what works. Uh, another important person kind of like him on, on a, a national, international scale is Bill McNibbin, who created an organization called 350.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he would be another really important mentor uh, in, in thinking about climate change. And then I like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a regular person, too. I get starstruck by all the celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who does, and I guess some people don't, but Leonardo DiCaprio, oh, my God, you know, such an inspiration. Celebrities have a huge ability to have a voice, 
to get a message out there that people will listen to. Um, so uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is one. Ian Somerhalder is another uh, celebrity star of Vampire Diaries who has a foundation um, that's all about environmental education and environmental activism. Uh, so there are, you know, again, a lot of celebrities who I uh, greatly admire uh, who are putting themselves out there in this. Amazing. Well, you know, when we talked about Bill McNibbin on TV shortly thereafter, when I was uh, watching the news, I think it was CBC, and uh, he was being interviewed, and it was on the heels of things having just marginally passed through where they were going to uh, progress with the Trans-Canada Pipeline, uh, which we know is a huge controversy. So what are your thoughts about the Trans-Canada Pipeline? What are some of the, the things that we don't necessarily understand are going to be ripple effects, you know, things we, we don't want to be people who live in regret but I mean you know we want to be careful that the decisions the well-informed decisions we're making today aren't going to create all kinds of catastrophe down the road and it's going to be one big mess to have to clean up so what are your thoughts around the whole Trans-Canada pipeline controversy? Yeah thanks for asking that I, I think that that's such an important question and issue and um, you know it came up it's come up right now with the Trans-Canada pipeline it's come up in the U.S. with the Keystone pipeline yeah. and uh, you know one of one of the very obvious things that does get a lot of press is concerns about spills and oil spills that can happen anywhere along the course of the pipeline and how damaging that is to the environment uh, to the water supply, to the earth, to the all the living things in that area. Um, and, and, you know, that is a huge factor, and it's proven to happen again and again. But I think the other piece that maybe doesn't get as much press, but that I think is equally or more important, is we need to ask ourselves, like, why are we building these pipelines? We're building them to transport fossil fuels. Fossil fuels put more carbon dioxide into the environment. That's not really what we want to be doing right now. And in fact, Canada was one of 186 countries that signed the Paris Climate Change Agreement. And if we have any hope of meeting the targets that we set out there, we need to leave 85% of our fossil fuels in the ground. So I don't think we need to talk about pipelines or how to get things from one place to another because really what we need to do is just leave it in the ground. There is more than enough space in Canada to transition to renewable energy, solar and wind energy. We have huge, vast fields of land where this can be done. You talk about an amazing, amazing project that happened in China that we should absolutely be considering here in Canada. So in China, they had these vast areas of contaminated water. They can't be used for anything. This water is so toxic, um, and it can't be cleaned up, and nothing in the environment can grow. They floated solar panels, thousands of solar panels, on top of this water to generate electricity. Well, we have all that land in Alberta, all the, the area of the tar sands, which if you've ever seen pictures of, mm -hmm. it's We've changed our beautiful blue-green planet into Mars. It's just a destroyed, horrific desert of, of dirt and dust, and there's no reason that we couldn't put solar panels out there or wind panels. I don't know if we'll ever be able to grow anything out there again, but it doesn't mean we can't put that space to great use. Absolutely. Well, talking about the solar panels, I saw again something else on the news just recently, and I forget exactly where it was. I don't know if it was in, um, oh, it was where, it was one of the, one of the places where we just recently had some massive destruction come through, and one of the hospitals, um, one of the hospitals was using the solar panels on the roof of their property and that was how they were keeping the ge and there was backup generators as well because they lost a lot of power and they were doing this in a hospital so these were donated panels and i know that the price when you're talking about x amount of panels for like something like a hospital which is is a building that's being used 24/7 and it's you know you've got all kinds of machines that are critical to keeping people alive and surgeries going on etc um, but they were talking about 
you know, that's something that needs to be happening throughout, not just when there's a crisis that emerges. And yes, it was great that people stepped up and, and, uh, people were donating thousands and millions of, of dollars, uh, for these people who were mostly impacted. And of course, we're talking about life death situations in the hospital with these patients. Um, but I think people get put off by the price. And we did talk about this on TV too. You did talk about how things have significantly reduced. Um, but when you're talking about bigger agencies or institutions, uh, you know, that's where I think people get a little bit leery. That's where people have a hard time living fearlessly, looking at the bigger picture. So I don't know if you want to speak a little bit to that, Marissa. Yeah, for sure. So you're right. We spoke some about um, uh, solar panels specifically. When mm-hmm. you look at the cost in the last five years, the cost to produce them has decreased by 200%. Um, so what used to be an investment of several thousand dollars to get solar panels is now an investment of several hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly each individual may want to make that decision, but cities and governments and institutions also have a role in making those decisions as well as, as you're pointing out, Lisa. Like it can be really hard for us as individuals but governments have a choice to make that easier or harder for us. Uh, you know, there are some provinces and some states in the U.S. where being environmentally responsible is incentivized. Where we live, buying an electric vehicle comes with a rebate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are states where it actually comes with a penalty. So lawmakers have a huge role to play. Uh, in how much things cost and how accessible they are to people, you would be amazed at how much more accessible in terms of cost things like solar power are in third world countries compared to the price in first world countries. It's interesting. That happens with drugs as well, too, that mm-hmm. uh, companies market things for what people can afford to pay for them, right? Yes, so, Absolutely. Yeah a wealthy society, so it might cost us a little more to buy a solar panel than it costs somebody in India. Uh, IKEA is selling solar panels now, by the way. Wow, I did not know that. <laughs> so, wow. But that was interesting. I feel like they need to combine with Lego somehow so that we can install <laughs> <them. laughs> Or maybe they have really good instructions with the IKEA. I don't know the pictures, but... Um, right. Yeah. And, did they, and, and so do these solar panels, and I, you know, I don't know if it would be specific to IKEA, but I mean, you know, you can get these company credit cards, you know, Best Buy or, um, you know, all these different companies and you can get credit. I mean, is there some type of incentive outside of what you've already mentioned, but, you know, recognizing that there's sometimes a, a hefty price tag attached, even though it has come down significantly, but to the average person, and we know that, you know, the economy is changing all the time. People are losing jobs. People want to be socially responsible and conscious, but they also have to go, okay, well, is this going to come at the expense of putting food on my table? And now that we're approaching Christmas, is this going to impede what kind of a Christmas I'm able to give my family, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, is there like pretty generous, flexible payment plans with solar panels? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There are. And and uh, most people who get solar panels generate enough electricity, not only for their own home, but to sell electricity back to the grid. So within a few years, you've paid off your solar panels by selling electricity back to the grid, and then you actually start to make money. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, that sounds very intuitive to me. Sounds very progressive and, and common sense to me. Um, do you see it getting to a point where it's going to be legislated where, you know, all houses that are being built by construction companies, they're going to have to, you know, reconfigure their way of doing business and people who become homeowners, uh, where they're going to have to buy a home that, uh, is is energized by solar panels? I mean, is, are we going in that direction, or is this always going to be a choice? Yeah. No, I think we're definitely going in that direction. So a lot of those kind of um, decisions are made by cities, mm-hmm. and uh, so each city can do it differently. But I have to tell you, cities are so on board with climate action and climate justice, it's incredible. 
we think about um, like Paris and the UN, and that's all countries being represented. Cities around the world have formed their own Congress and have their own international meetings to help support one another in making changes that, that they have the power to make really important things. And as you said, things like building codes, that falls within cities' uh, legislations. Some cities, New York City, has been amazing about that. All new buildings have to meet really strict criteria of energy efficiency, um, of where they're getting their energy from, also making sure that they're safe for uh, environmental disasters, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's that's the other part is, you know, we want to mitigate as much as possible and improve things, but we also have to adapt because some things – are what they are right now, and we hope that they're not going to get worse, but we need to be conscious and adapt to them. So if we know that we're going to have more severe weather events, being connected to a grid for electricity that will take out those, uh, that when you have an event will take out the electricity, isn't the smartest thing to do anyways. Everybody having their own piece of the energy pie when there's a a weather event that's extreme, like a hurricane, like in Puerto Rico, you have much more flexibility to recover that way. So I think things are absolutely headed in that direction. You know, Lisa, also, as we've been talking, I'm reminded we're talking a lot about solar panels and um, there's there's actually solar glass as well that you can put on your windows. But it reminds me when you asked about uh, who inspires me and gives me hope. And I left out a hugely important group, which is the scientists. Right. Yes, that's right, because I know they're very pivotal in your journey. Absolutely. So, you know, people like Elon Musk, I mean, he's the big name that that we hear about uh, in terms of innovation. But there are lots of scientists in all different fields of research, whether it's energy or hydrology or agriculture, that are finding the solutions to draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, to have uh, different ways of maintaining our lifestyle not sacrificing anything, and yet still not putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So we really have so much to thank scientists for. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. So being cognizant of time, Marissa, I want to give you an opportunity to invite people. So when the when the book is released, like I say, we, we talked about at the top of the hour here, April 22nd, Earth Day, no coincidence, code blue. Uh, where can people find that? And and I think it would be beneficial for people to know, which I think is absolutely lovely of you, what it is you're wanting to do with the royalties and, and uh, where people can purchase your book and, and where that all goes to. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, the book is going to be on Amazon, so you can order it that way. It will be on my publisher's website, Moon Willow Press, and it will be in select uh, local independent bookstores. I'd say probably in the Toronto, Hamilton area and in British Columbia. Uh, any independent bookstore is able to order books for people as well, so if that's how people would like to get them, they can certainly get them that way. Uh, it was really important to me and to my publisher to be able to donate the royalties to uh, an environmental charity. And uh, we've, we've talked to a few different charities right now. So I have to say I haven't settled on one. If, if any of the listeners have an idea of a charity that they think would be great to donate to, I would love to hear from them. So they can contact me on my website, which is marissaslavin.com, uh, or my email, marissa at codebluebook.com, and let me know what charity you think it should go to. Beautiful. And so, you know, having this exciting opportunity and uh, experience upon you with April 22nd, which we know time goes so fast. I mean, here we are, we're already sitting at December 1st. I mean, what was the time frame for you, the inception of of the book, the writing, uh, all the edits, getting to a point where you're like, okay, that's the finished product. I don't want to scale it back. I don't want to edit it. I don't want to omit. I don't want to add anything else to 
where you are now and knowing that April is just around the corner. So for anybody who's endeavoring to write a book, you know, oftentimes people always talk about the finished product, product. Um, but I think what's inspiring and what's empowering for the listening audience is for those who also feel they have a powerful message, something that they want to share, which they think is going to inspire the collective. You know, maybe you can give them some encouraging words or some tips of how you navigated yourself throughout the book writing process. Absolutely. So the book writing process was so much fun for me, Lisa. Writing and creative, it's just, it's my happy place. I go there and I forget about everything else. And, and anybody who hasn't tried it, pick up a pen or sit down with your laptop. I got to mm-hmm. say, being able to write fiction, especially where you make up everything and you get to control everything, unlike the real world, is so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> you know what? You can change it. You can do anything you want in fiction. So it's really great. Um, it took me about two years to, to write Code Blue, and that was with lots and lots and lots of revisions. I don't even know the number of revisions that I did, and lots of input from uh, excellent mentors at Humber were, were particularly helpful in getting me to the finished product. Um, and, you know, Lisa, it was, it was interesting on my journey uh, these days there's always an option to self-publish. And so, you know, I knew that was out there, but I really felt like this was something that I wanted to spread the message as far and wide as possible and that I would see if I could get it published by a established press. Mm-hmm. And so I sent out uh, inquiry letters. I sent out to my top 10 publishers and got back all no's. And then I sent back to my next 10, top 10 publishers and got back all no's. And I guess I sort of decided in my mind that I was able to withstand 50 with rejections. And if I got 50 rejections, then I would think self-publishing. It's not easy, Lisa. Every time a letter comes, yes, we like it, but, yeah. Right, right. You get a lot of rejections and you start to question yourself and wonder. And so I think for me, it was helpful that I set a goal and a target of this is what I'm going to do. And I got 37 rejections and the 38th one was an acceptance. And it was clearly just meant to be. It was for me. Yeah. Well, and what I what I love about your story and what I and I really appreciate you sharing that because a lot of authors would be reluctant to share that. People don't like to talk openly about rejection, never mind the amount of rejections that they've received consecutively to get to the point. But I think that's a very important point that you raised, uh Marissa, because you know, people oftentimes throw in the towel or people buy into too much of what externally uh the perception of other people. We we allow ourselves to be defined by that. We allow ourselves to be derailed by that, silenced by that, dismissed by that. And so because this is living fearlessly and because you are somebody who clearly does embody living fearlessly, somebody who has truly stepped into it, owned the stage, owned the power, owned, you know, you've you've birthed such a beautiful project, book, story, a legacy here. I think this is amazing. And so the fact that you are very generously and very graciously letting it be known and sharing with the listening audience as well as myself that, you know what, if this means something to you, if this is a non-negotiable and yes, set a target, you know, you got to be realistic and you've got to be fair on yourself too, because life does need to go on and you need to continually keep yourself in a good space, a good mindset. Um, but I think if you're very fierce, on what it is you establish for yourself and you hone it, hone it, hone it. And you take massive action because of course we all know, Marissa, you know this for a fact. You know, it's not enough to say, Oh, I have a dream. It's not enough to say, Oh, I'm going to manifest this. It's not enough to say, I'm going to visualize this. You actually have to take massive action. And to the degree that you take yourself seriously, to the degree that, you know, you buy into yourself and you're your, you know, you're your own hero, your own shero, your own leader, your own best friend, then boom, bang, don't things align. And that's where you find your tribe. That's where you find your demographic. That's where you find the people who are meant to be in your circle to join you on the journey. So I just want to say how important it was that you shared that with us because rejection is a part of growth, people, right? If you're not... And if you're not failing, we all have, like, and people define it very differently. It doesn't mean you are a failure. 
it just means it, it to me that's a test that's the universe saying how badly do you really want this because i'm not going to make this overly easy for you but to the degree that you get up and you fight for it every single day that's when we're going to go okay yep this is meant to be this woman never gave up and so here she is reaping the benefits but the benefits in terms of paying it forward and being of service to other people and imparting your message to the collective so i just want to say thank you for being a warrior uh, thank you for being, uh, you know, you say I'm your mentor and we have this mentoring relationship. But I'll tell you something, Marissa, I'm learning exponentially all kinds of amazing and yummy things from you. And I take my hat off to you. I think the way that you live your life, the way you emit your energy and the way you get behind, how can I make this world better for the collective? I'm awestruck by you and I'm honored to be on the journey with you and call you friend. Thank you so much, Lisa. I agree with everything you've said 100%. It's all about the motivation. How do we keep ourselves going if we know that we're helping other people, that our motivation is important and worthwhile? It's easy to keep going. Yes, rejection hurts, but if you're doing it for the right reasons, you just keep going. Absolutely. Well, again, we're unfortunately, we're always quick to run out of time here. I could talk to you all day. Um, you know, I just, I love how passionate you are. Energy never lies and your energy comes through the airwaves and I know is probably resonating with every single person who has uh, plugged into the show. So I just want to say thank you very much. Dr. Marissa Slavin for the gift of your time, for all the wonderful uh, nuggets that you've imparted to myself and to the listening audience. I really encourage people who might not be in a position to hear the live broadcast, please take time to listen to the Encore and the podcast link, which will soon, once calibrated, will be uploaded, shared, and released. Take notes. You know, whether whether climate hope, climate Anything to do with this particular subject matter is of interest to you or not. Uh, it doesn't resonate with everyone. I think we all have a moral responsibility to pull up our sleeves and get behind it uh, because we all get impacted either for the, for the good or for the, the negative. However, there are so many other things that can be paralleled out of this interview that we've had today with Dr. Marissa Slavin. So please take notes. Please listen to the Encore. Share this with anybody who you think is going to uh, gain benefits and advantages because it is all it all starts with us. You know, everything that we claim that we want to see different and uh, transformed in this world, it comes from each and every one of us. So, again, I want to thank Dr. Marissa Slavin for being our wonderful guest today. I want to thank the listening audience. I want to thank you for being one of 400,000 Living Fearlessly uh, podcast subscribers to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. I want to thank every yummy guest I've ever had on the show. I want to thank, again, the loyal listeners. I want to thank my sponsors over at Halton Honda. I want to thank my friends and family over at C-Suite Radio Network uh, for also giving me visibility and a platform for myself and for my guests to shine and get the message out there, knowing it's all about paying it forward and being of service. I want to wish everybody a phenomenal weekend. Please be safe. I am here to uplift you to fear less and to live more, and I believe that my guest, Marissa, and I have accomplished that in unison together today, so thank you. And uh, we'll be back here again next Friday. Always got yummy stuff on Friday, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 o'clock Eastern, Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald on the Contact Talk Radio Network. Wishing you all my very best, uplifting you to fear less and to live more. Take care, love and gratitude, all my best. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. Visit her at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.